Welcome in to News and Views with Tom Lamprecht. The stories you've heard and the ones you need to hear. Inflation remains well above 2%. We do expect we're going to be in for tougher times ahead. Raised interest rate by three quarters of a percentage point. Secure border. This border is a disaster. Not to ease tensions, but to escalate them. Your life, your values, your voice. This is News and Views with Tom Lamprecht on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. All right. Welcome in. News and Views for a Thursday. And uh, got a good program lined up for you. We're scheduled to have John Malcolm on with us. He is the vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We're going to be talking to him about the upcoming SCOTUS calendar and some of the events that are scheduled to be heard in oral arguments. And what's interesting about this, he did an article recently which highlighted nine upcoming cases. Of those nine, now that's that's not all the cases they're going to hear, but he reviewed nine cases that they have agreed to hear. Two of those come from North Carolina, so we'll be talking to him about those as well. Plus, we'll play a little political trivia, your category today, presidents that had this in common. Okay? So lots to talk about, and uh, look forward to a good hour with you. John Kerry. Every now and then, these liberals accidentally speak the truth, and John Kerry did so today, but he is so giddy over the fact that the Inflation Reduction Act was passed because he's all about green energy. No doubt he's making millions of dollars on this green energy boondoggle. U.S. Special Presidential Climate Envoy John Kerry praised the Inflation Reduction Act, calling it an amazing bill due to its climate-related impact while acknowledging it doesn't have anything to do with inflation. Bingo. Speaking at the International Energy Agency's Global Clean Energy Action Forum, that's a mouthful, Kerry called the bill a completely misnamed piece of legislation. But first, he gave a different reason. We're running around saying, I support the IRA. That's tricky in politics. But here we are, he joked, in apparent reference to the Irish Republican Army. Then he made the same observation as the bill's critics. Quote, I'm not sure how much it has to do with inflation, but that's okay. You know, this is such, if I said this once, I've said it a hundred times. Liberals love to misname their events, their organizations, their bills. So this is named the Inflation Reduction Act, which it does totally the opposite. It will cause more inflation. It's like Planned Parenthood. What an oxymoron that is. A time after time after time, you, you, you see these misnamed organizations, misnamed bills. And you're going to hear a lot of uh, lying political ads between now and November. But uh, it's, it's a way of life. So thank you, John Kerry, for actually uh, saying something that's correct little too late. Wouldn't it be great if we could go back and say, wait a minute, even a presidential candidate from the Democrat Party said that basically, I'm paraphrasing here, but said this is a pack of lies. So why then shouldn't this be rescinded? If this is such a good thing, why do you have to lie about it? If green energy is so wonderful, why do you have to lie about it? (laughs) That's all they do. Uh, Again, the old adage, if they're moving their lips, they're probably lying. 
Fox News is reporting a Massachusetts judge accused of helping an illegal immigrant evade an immigration and customs enforcement officer reached an agreement with federal prosecutors more than three years after her incident. I remember we talked about this when it happened. It's hard to believe it's been three years. U.S. Attorney for the District of Rhode Island, Zachary Kuna, announced Thursday that Newton District Court Judge Sully Joseph, Shelley Joseph, I should say, will refer to herself to the Massachusetts Commission on Judicial Conduct for discipline rather than facing federal prosecution. Quote, this case is about the conduct of a sitting judge on the bench in the course of her judicial duties. Its purpose has been to shed light on and, as warranted, to secure accountability for that conduct, Kuna said in a statement. After I was assigned to oversee this matter, I undertook a full and comprehensive review of the evidence, the applicable law, and relevant equitable and prudential and uh, yeah, prudential factors. Having done so, I have concluded that the interests of justice are best served by a review of this matter before the body that oversees the conduct of Massachusetts state court judges rather than in a continued in a federal criminal prosecution. Uh, this ought to make you... <laughs> have your blood pressure go up. I, it's, I mean, again, this is so typical. I mean, first of all, ultimately, this decision, if you go to the root of this, who made this decision, it goes down to Joe Biden's Department of Justice, Merrick Garland. I mean, this decision was made under their oversight. The Biden regime has made it clear that if you're a Republican, or even a concerned PTA parent, or you decide to go to a presidential rally on January the 6th, you're going to be treated as a terrorist and not as an American citizen. However, if you are a liberal judge who goes against the conservative narrative, I mean, is, all you got to do is look at the southern border and realize that the Biden administration is all about Let's just usher in as many illegals as we possibly can, as I said the other day, to wreck the system, to destroy the system. Their desire is, is not to get votes because, in actuality, many of these people are coming from socialist, communist, Marxist countries, and they're not going to vote. They, they recognize the issues quicker than lifelong Democrats recognize these issues. So it's not for their vote because I, I really truly believe now some will vote their pocketbook if they if they had a chance to vote, and again, unfortunately, is the ones that are going to vote for the socialists are probably going to lie and you know somehow finagle their way into the voting booth when it's ought not to be legal for them to vote. But if they if they all had the right to vote, I think the majority of them probably would vote uh, for a more conservative uh, candidate. But the reason why they're letting everybody in is because they want to break the system. They want the system to fail so that they can come in with their new recreated Marxist socialist government where the oligarchs, those people like John Kerry, Joe Biden, Gavin Newsom, the Clintons, the list goes on and on. They will, be the, they will be the ones in charge. It, it will be no different than the billionaires over in Russia who have all kinds of money, yachts, homes, et cetera, et cetera. 
It'd be, it's the same system. It, it, it basically would be the same system. Now, oh, yeah, they'd, they'd waive the red, white, and blue, but it would be the same, the same idea that the oligarchs would be in charge. They would retain the power, and they would retain the money. And you serfs, you're, you're going to be working for them. Point, example, Venezuela. I mean, Venezuela, 30 years ago, one of the, the most prosperous country in South America. Free, open, exporter of oil. Uh, not that way anymore. How many, of the, how many of the people coming across the southern border are from Venezuela? But, yeah, if you're a judge that helps the narrative that we're going to bring illegals across, you let one go free, break the law, don't worry. You're taken care of by Merrick Garland and the Joe Biden administration. Georgia Democrat gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams. Yesterday she was in a panel, and she said this was at the Ray Charles Performing Arts Center in Atlanta. Abrams claimed that the sound of such fetal heartbeats is manufactured by men seeking to take control of women. Sounds like the Stepford Wives. Quote, let me quote her. There is no such thing as a heartbeat at six weeks. It's a manufactured sound designed to convince people that men have the right to take control of a woman's body. Stacy, I got news for you. The only people that would want to take care of, uh, take control of your body, if they could, they would make sure your mouth stays closed. Now, I, I know uh, Abrams, of course, is running against uh, Republican Governor Brian Kemp. Now, I know you are thinking, come on, Tom, nobody would say that stupid of a remark. And I understand why you'd say that. So here, cut one, Mike. Here, in her own words, is Stacey Abrams. There is no such thing as a heartbeat in six weeks. It is a manufactured sound designed to convince people that men have the right to take control of a woman's body away from her. And believe it or not, there are like six other people up on the stage with her, and half of them were nodding in agreement. Oh, that's deep. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's good. That's good, Stacy. Yeah, you tell them. Now, uh, uh, part of this deal is there was a law passed in 2019 that limited abortions, that you could not have a port, uh, an abortion. I think it was uh, 15 weeks, if I remember correctly. The Georgia legislation known as Living Infants Fairness and Equality Life Act, or Heartbeat Bill, bans abortions after the fetal heartbeat is detected. Okay, so it's, it's really could be as early as six weeks. The Georgia law includes exceptions for rape and incest as long as police report is filed. It also allows for later abortions when the mother's life is at risk or a serious medical condition renders a fetus unviable. So basically... Stacy, this bill passed in 2019. At the time, a federal judge ruled it unconstitutional. After the Dobbs decision took place and uh, Roe v. Wade was reversed, so was that judge's decision. And as of July 20th in Georgia, there is no abortions. Same criteria I just told you, but there is no abortions after a fetal heartbeat is, uh, is detected. And to that... This genius says, oh, it's manufactured. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and she's getting slammed rather royally on Twitter. I will say this. 
Stacy is really stupid or she is really desperate. Very well, both. But uh, she is, her numbers are not good. I, we, we reported just yesterday. I think uh, Kemp now has a, a 13 percentage point lead over uh, Stacy. So she, uh, she's probably grasping at straws at this point. I tell you what, we're going to take time out early because uh, when we get back, uh, we hope to be joined by John Malcolm of the Heritage Foundation. Got a good interview. You're going to stay for this. I'll be right back. Let's go, Brandon. When we're not covering Brandon's heroics. This uh, Brandon, she, what does he play? Well, Mr. President, they're not. Um... Folks, let's hear it for Brandon. What a job he's doing. Let's go, Brandon. Now back to news and let's views on 96.3 and 103.7. Welcome back in News and Views for a Thursday. John Malcolm, the vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, overseeing the Heritage Foundation's work to increase understanding of the Constitution and the rule of law. John recently wrote an article which had appeared in the Daily Signal, which is the publication of the Heritage Foundation. He writes at the beginning of this article, it will be tough, if not impossible, for the Supreme Court to top the 21-22 term when it comes to both drama and the results that please the conservative legal community. The three words that best describe the Supreme Court's decision this term are text, history, and tradition, or better said, originalism rules and that's a good thing. John, welcome to News and Views. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Good to be with you. So your article highlights nine cases that the Supreme Court will hear in this upcoming term. Interestingly, two of those cases involve North Carolina. Um, Before we get into some of the details of all this, what are the total number of cases that uh, SCOTUS will hear in an average one-year term? Yeah, it's up to them. It's dropped over the last several years, but typically it's somewhere around 65 cases, get up to about 70. And so far they have decided to hear 25 cases. So there's still a lot more cases that they will take to fill their docket. They come back, they will begin oral arguments the first Monday in October, but starting next week, they will come back and review all of the petitions for certiorari that have gathered over the summer what's called the long conference. So I expect that next week they will add a few more cases to their docket, and we will all be waiting with bated breath to see what those cases are. As those cases are decided upon the Supreme Court, now obviously if they go over everything that came in over the summer, there will probably be a a surge. After that, is it a fairly even sequence as they trickle out what they're going to hear the rest of the year? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's sometimes emergency cases that come up and they decide to hear them on an expedited basis. But yeah, they'll continue to get cert petitions and they'll continue to take cases probably until the early 2023. They'll stop hearing oral arguments, typically at the end of April, sometime into May or early May. And then they, they issue all of their opinions, usually by the end of June, might stop over a day or two in July before they jet off for their various summer plans. But I've heard it said that even though they don't release them until June, they pretty much, uh, do they go in and immediately take a vote after the oral argument? That's not binding necessarily. Uh, and then they assign who the, in the majority who is going to write the opinions. Is that how it works? Yeah. yeah so the way this goes, and, and it is often the case that the most contentious cases 
are uh, are released at the end of the term because people are writing concurrences and lengthy dissents and responding to each other. So they'll hear oral arguments in a particular week. Then they will gather at the end of the week in the conference room, starting with the chief justice going all the way down to the most junior justice. They will give their very quick opinions as to how they think the case ought to uh, be resolved. Uh, you're right. You know, until the opinion is issued, no one is committed and they can change their vote. And sometimes that they do, the first Obamacare case being a prominent example of that. If the chief justice is in the majority, the chief justice gets to assign who writes the opinion. If the chief justice is not in the majority, then the senior most justice who is in the majority gets to assign that opinion. So, for instance, in the Dobbs case, which is the case that overturned Roe versus Wade, right. the chief justice was not in the majority. So Clarence Thomas was the most senior justice in the majority, and he assigned that opinion to Samuel Alito. Makes sense. Well, if there was a silver lining to the Dobbs case, I think everybody learned a little bit more about how the uh, Supreme Court works. But getting back to your your article on these nine cases that the Supreme Court will hear in this upcoming term, uh, we know that the the Supreme Court is leaning fairly strongly to the right. I mean, there's a couple of ifs, John Roberts and Kavanaugh. Uh, you know, sometimes they let precedent take a, uh, a higher authority over what I would say common sense. That's just my opinion. But as, as you looked at these nine cases that you examined closely, is there a pattern that substantiates the fact that this court is leaning to the right these days? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, there is no question that for the first time in my lifetime, there are a majority of the Supreme Court justices would describe themselves as originalists Mm -hmm. uh, and textualists. And that certainly was the case last year. So originalists believe that when you look at constitutional cases, you shouldn't just sort of impose your own uh, personal uh, beliefs onto the Constitution. You should try to divine what the understanding was by the public. Uh, at the time those constitutional provisions were ratified. Textualists follow the text of a statute. They don't tend to look behind the text to try to divine some kind of legislative meaning based on you know, hearings that may have taken place before Congress. They stick to the text that was actually passed by both houses of Congress and ratified uh, by, uh, by the president or signed by the president. Um, you know, here they've taken up a couple of very, very big Two or three very big cases, uh, two of them, one of them out of North Carolina, this hard, the challenge to Harvard's admissions policies and UNC's admissions policies uh, because of explicit racial preferences that they use on those policies. That's a big case. Court will consider both of those. Then there's another, as you mentioned, big case, an election law case out of North Carolina, Moore versus Harper, in which the court will determine so that the North Carolina legislature passed after the 2020 census, its redistricting plan. And the, the, Cal- the North Carolina Supreme Court said that it was uh, done on the basis of partisan gerrymandering and violated the state's constitution. The Supreme Court had already determined that partisan gerrymandering does not violate the federal constitution. But there is a provision in the U.S. Constitution called the Elections Clause It says the manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. So the question is, could that federal constitutional provision preclude the North Carolina Supreme Court from, you know, throwing out the the legislature's map uh, on the basis of a violation of the state constitution? And then there's another big case that has both free speech implications 
uh, and religious freedom implications out of Colorado sort of picks up where a case from a couple of turns ago involving a baker named uh, Jack Phillips in Masterpiece Cake Shop left off. Uh, Here, a web designer wants to expand her Colorado business to do graphic designs and web designs for weddings, but her religious beliefs preclude her from doing, you know, doing that for same-sex weddings. There's Colorado human rights law that says you've got to do that, uh, and the Supreme Court is going to decide whether or not this violates this web designer's free speech rights. She won. One does not want to be compelled to tacitly approve of the same-sex marriage, so she's arguing that the government is putting words into her mouth tacitly. And also, she wants to put up a statement on the website saying why she won't uh, service same-sex weddings, because it violates the tenets of her sincerely held religious belief. And she's being precluded from doing that. So the Supreme Court has said they're not going to take up whether or not this violates the free exercise clause, but they will take up whether this violates the free speech clause. Both of those are contained in the First Amendment. Well, it certainly is a free speech issue. And let me ask you a question related to that. The, the young lady that has the uh, web design business is named Lori Smith. Yep. Yep. And, and you're right. In many ways, it, um, it is similar to Baron L. Stutzman, the florist from uh, the state yes. of Washington, and Jack Phillips, the baker from the state of Colorado. Yep. Does this, do you think the Supreme Court on this let, – let's just assume that um, Lori Smith prevails in this – and they're writing their opinion. Does, does the Supreme Court need to come down a little bit with a little bit more of a strong directive uh, to the lower courts and these state courts? Because and the reason why I say that is, if you if you look at the inference of the Jack Phillips case, uh, they, and again, I know they you know you, you bring your case to the Supreme Court, and then the Supreme Court goes back and tells the state commission you erred. Go back and redo uh, your your decision. Uh, and right. I understand that the Supreme Court doesn't want to come down with a hammer, but yet when you have the same state come back again and come after Lori Smith with a very similar scenario, uh, does the Supreme – do you think the Supreme Court ever considers that as like, Colorado, you're back again with another case that's almost identical? Well, there's no question with respect to the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. The majority opinion was written by Justice Anthony Kennedy, and they really ducked the main issue. Uh, they got seven justices to say, well, when Jack Phillips was before the Colorado Human Rights Commission or whatever, yes, Colorado Civil Rights Commission, they were really biased. They showed a lot of hostility to his religious beliefs. That was an unfair process. And they, they ruled in his favor and basically said, go back and try again. Well, these people aren't idiots. They're not going, the next time they have a hearing, they're not going to say anything that's overtly hostile to somebody's religion, but they rule against them anyway. So now I think that the court will pick up where the Masterpiece Cake Shop case left off, and I think they will reach the main issue. They just won't do it on free exercise of religion grounds. They will do it on the basis of whether or not this is a compelled statement uh, expressing support for a same-sex marriage and precluding her from entering an explicit statement expressing her objections to doing that. How similar is this case to the Baron L. Stutzman case? And the Supreme Court turned down Baron L. Stutzman. They didn't hear her case. Uh, will this have an effect on her situation? Well, I think that case, Baron L. Stutzman case, has been settled. Uh, I don't remember exactly what the terms of the settlement were. I mean, look, it's very expensive to engage in litigation, and it's tough on your life. Uh, you know, you're on the front pages of the paper all the time, and people 
both in favor of you and against you or are confronting you all the time. It is the same issue. The only difference is one is a web designer and she was a florist and Jack Phillips was, you know, making custom cakes. They're all the same issue. It's that the, the civil rights community, the LGBT community, wants to compel everybody to Bingo. serve them uh, for their same-sex weddings. Yeah, all these people are perfectly willing to say, look, I'll design a website for you. I don't care whether you're gay or right. not for any other occasion other than for your same-sex marriage. But that's not that's not good enough for the people who want to advance a particular agenda. But they're all the same issue. Let me bring you back to these uh, North Carolina cases. Let's talk a little bit about yep. uh, the, the MAPS case. In 2019, Rucho versus Common Cause, you write in your article, the Supreme Court held that partisan gerrymandering does not violate the U.S. Constitution. Um, right. The state Supreme Court held that the MAP adopted by the legislature violated North Carolina's constitutional guarantee to its citizens to substantially equal voting power. In fact, they... they the North Carolina Supreme Court actually goes in the North Carolina Constitution where, and I'm paraphrasing here, but basically it talks about the state shall have free elections. And from that, they contrive that this is a violation of the, of the Constitution. And in fact, our Constitution here in the state of North Carolina also uh, is very similar to the federal Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, when it comes to the fact that the legislature will be in charge of, of uh, deciding uh, these uh, election laws. I would think this case ought to be a poster child for judicial malfeasance. I mean, you've got the Rucho case, you've got the uh, North Carolina Constitution, you've got the U.S. Constitution, and yet four activist judges on the North Carolina Supreme Court said, nah, we don't care, we're going to do what we darn well please. Well, there certainly were four activist judges. I mean, you know, who knew that... that uh that an election that guarantees substantially equal legislative representation means that partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional. I assume the North Carolina Constitution has been around for quite some time, yes. and nobody ever found this. So the Supreme Court in the Rucho case said, look, partisan gerrymandering is in a long part of our history. In fact, the phrase gerrymandering came from, in our early days, one of our founders of, one of our, founders of our country, Eldridge Gerry was the governor of Massachusetts. He was later vice president. And he drew up a, a, a congressional map that looked at people like a salamander. The people said, Elbridge Gerry salamander? Gerrymandering. That's where the phrase actually mm. comes from. Uh, and, you know, uh, yes, there is the elections clause. This deviled uh, the Trump administration, or, or, or Donald Trump, I should say, when he was running in 2020, because you had a lot of federal judges, state court judges, executive branch officials changing election laws that had been passed by the legislature using the pandemic as the excuse for doing so. In a few cases, the legislature ratified it. In most cases, they didn't. Uh, and that has so, you know, that caused a lot of problems uh, and getting some kind of guidance from the Supreme Court uh, about whether it is OK for a state court to change the election laws and if so, under what circumstances will be very a very welcome development. We're talking to John Malcolm. He is the vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies from the Heritage Foundation. John, going over to the other North Carolina case, the UNC Harvard Court case, I know there have been previous uh, cases that have uh, addressed student body affirmative action, uh, which these universities label as they're trying to achieve student body diversity. 
would um, any of these past decisions that have come before uh, the federal courts, and I, is, has there ever been a, a similar case that came before the Supreme Court? I think there was one back in the early 2000s, wasn't there? Yes. So the, the, the court is going to consider whether to overturn its 2003 decision in Grutter versus Bollinger, which involved the University of Michigan Law School's racial preferences admissions policies. In that case, very controversial, uh, the Supreme Court said that obtaining you know, a diverse student body could be a compelling interest, and that if, if it was part of a holistic approach, that one could consider race as a thumb on the scale, so long as it was very narrowly tailored. You had to consider race-neutral admissions policies. You couldn't have a quota. Uh, and here... Uh, this lawsuit against Harvard, a private college, and the lawsuit against University of North Carolina, a public university, uh, are saying, look, this is essentially BS, that these are really de facto quota systems that dramatically benefit African-American applicants, dramatically disadvantage primarily Asians who apply to these schools. There's nothing narrowly tailored about it. This is an explicit racial preference policy, uh, and that is runs afoul in the case of, of uh, Harvard University, uh, the 14th Amendment, or, or and, and I'm sorry, in the case of the North University of North Carolina, the 14th Amendment, it's state action, and in the case of Harvard College, Title VI, which says that if you accept any federal funds whatsoever, you can't engage in racial discrimination. And I, you know, we will see how the Supreme Court comes out, but I am optimistic that they are indeed going to revisit Grutter uh, and uh, and overturn it. You talked before about conservatives sometimes not trusting Chief Justice Roberts. I understand why you say that. But on this issue, he's been very solid. He wrote in a case once called Parents Involved that the best way to stop racial discrimination is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And so, But a lot of eyes on the Supreme Court when these cases are argued on Halloween. That's interesting. Uh, John, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, just one last question as it relates to the Supreme Court and uh, especially this UNC Harvard case, and that is how I, – I, I'm sorry to sound so cynical, but <laughs> I'm 68 years old. I've been a conservative all my life, and you, you learn to get cynical over these things. I have no faith that these universities, even if the Supreme Court says, no, that's unconstitutional, it's illegal, you can't do that – uh, how do you, how does and, and John Roberts talked about this at a summit he was uh, speaking to recently and basically he said listen if the legislature uh, d- doesn't follow what the uh, Supreme Court what our federal courts are are telling them then our, our system is broken and uh, we cannot possibly succeed as a society um, how do you get these universities? to actually obey the decisions that the Supreme Court would make. Yeah, well, there's no question that universities and businesses and whatnot will often try to play hide the ball. One thing they're already doing, because I think they anticipate that they may lose this case, is they're doing things like, you know, we're not going to use standardized test scores anymore. We're just going to evaluate, you know, people's essays that they that they submit. Oh, uh, they come up with coded language that makes it yeah. makes it work, but they don't want to have a system in which African-American students score badly on these scores, but they get admitted over Asian applicants who score dramatically better than they do uh, on these uh, on these tests. So they will find ways to try to game the system to achieve the same result, but it'll be a lot tougher, uh, and there will be challengers out there who will say that this is really just a ruse. 
By the way, I want to give uh, the Heritage Foundation a plug. You all are going to have a special event. I wouldn't be surprised if you're involved in this next, uh, I believe it's next Tuesday, a a preview of the Supreme Court. And uh, listeners can go to heritage.org forward slash courts forward slash events and sign up for this. I think, what is it, a one-hour forum in which you're going to be discussing things in more detail that we've talked about today. Yeah, no, that's right. With former U.S. Solicitor General Paul Clement, who's argued over 100 cases in front of the Supreme Court, and a former acting U.S. Solicitor General Jeff Wall, very talented lawyers, also argued dozens of cases in front of the Supreme Court. My colleague Zach Smith will be moderating that, and people can uh, watch a live stream of it. Or if they can't, for whatever reason, they can go a day afterwards and get the event. I, si- I, I signed up today. By the way, John, go look up Lamprec versus the FCC. Talk about discrimination courses. That's my 30 seconds of fame before Clarence Thomas, back when he was on the D.C. Circuit. I'll do it. John, thanks for your time. I do appreciate it. Look forward to talking to you again in my the future. Pleasure, John. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. John Malcolm calling in from uh, D.C. and the Heritage Foundation. Let's lighten things up and play a little political trivia, shall we? Give us a call, 561-8255, 561-8255. Your category, the presidents had this in common. Interesting question. Good prize package. We'll play when we get back. All right, welcome back in. Time for a little political trivia, 561-8255. Got a couple of lines open yet, so give us a call. Your category today, presidents that had this in common. Your prize package includes a free oil change for your car or pickup at Dave Davis's East Carolina Chrysler Dodge Jeep or at Washington Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram, a Ironwood gift certificate for a round of golf, a $20 gift card to Gwendy's Goodies Bakery in Aden, delicious baked fresh made from scratch goodies a $20 gift card to mucho bueno for lunch or dinner mucho bueno real mexican street food located in front of the westbrook shopping center us 70 west in havelock also a gift certificate from fit for life 24 including two free training sessions with a fitness coach remember if you or anyone in your immediate family have won recently let 60 days pass before you play again. Again, that number 561-8255, area code 252. First up from Emerald Isle, we have Bruce on the line. Hi, Bruce. Hey, uh, hello there. Let's do it. Let's do it. I like it. All right, here's your question. What interesting distinction do the following presidents have in common? William Henry Harrison, Zachary Taylor, Warren G. Harding, and Franklin D. Roosevelt. No other presidents can lay claim to this distinction. They died in office. Abraham Lincoln died in office. Well, I know, but, um, oh, that's true. He was murdered, but... uh, You're you're really warm. I'm going to get you one more jab at it because you're dancing all around it. Okay. Um, They won... At least two terms of presidency. That's not it. That's well, I not know it. Did. That's, That's not it. That, well, it's always hard to be first. Yeah, it is. Good. It is. Think about it and I, call I, me I, back. Five six one eight two five five. I will say this, Bruce. You gave a huge hint to all the other listeners. Five six one eight two five five. Let's go to Jackie. Hey, Jackie. Jackie, listen over the phone. Don't listen over your radio. Jackie, I I can. 
Well, I think Jackie got confused and hung up. Five six one eight two five five. Let's go to Doug. Hey, Doug. Doug, you with us? Hey, how are you, sir? Did you hear the question? I did hear the question. I missed the first uh, response, but I was really more thinking on a little bit on the facetious side. Okay, speak up just a little louder. I hard time hearing you. Sorry about that. I was just thinking, I missed the first answer, but I was thinking more on the more common side that they were all biologically male. Well, I said no other president holds this distinction unless they were all transgenders. Oh, I, I don't that. <laughs> And by the way, uh, the first guess was um, they died in office. And there were other oh, yeah. people that died in office besides those four. Abraham right. Lincoln. A, 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 hint, a hint to our listeners Abraham Lincoln died in office. 561 8255. Who's up next, uh, Michael? Let's go to Bobby. Hey, Bobby. Hi. What do you think? What interesting distinction do the following presidents have in common? William Henry Harrison, Zachary Taylor, Warren G. Harding, Franklin D. Jo- uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt. No other presidents can lay claim to this distinction. They died in office, but they were not assassinated. That's it! Congratulations! Where are you calling from? Winterville. All right. Congratulations. You got it. They, uh, William Henry Harrison, the ninth president, died of an illness in 1849, just 32 days into his term. Zachary Taylor, the 12th president, died in 1815, 16 months in office. Warren G. Harding, the 29th president, died in 1923 after two years in office. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the 32nd president, died of complications from his long bout with polio in April of 1945. Some wonder, some wonder, will Joe Biden join this club? I I hope not, but we we have to wonder. Thanks for calling. Thanks for playing. And stay with us. I'll be right back. All right. Welcome back in. Congratulations to Bobby Blackman of Winterville, North Carolina. You got our trivia question right. Of the eight U.S. presidents who died in office, four were assassinated and four died of other causes. Those four that died of other causes, William Henry Harrison, Zachary Taylor, Warren G. Harding, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Congratulations, Bobby. Thanks for everybody who played. So yesterday I told you about Letitia James' civil rights lawsuit against the Trump family. Today, Bill Barr, in an interview with Fox, pretty much verified everything I said. What ultimately persuades me that this is a, a political hit job is uh, she grossly overreaches when she tries to drag the children into the, this. Yes, they had roles in the business, but this was his personal financial statement. It was prepared by the CFO. Accounting firms were involved in it. The children aren't going to know the details of that and be able and nor are they expected in the real world to do their own due diligence and have it, you know, reviewed independently. And so uh, this this to me looks like gross overreach, which I think is going to end up backfiring on them, because I think it will make people sympathetic for Trump, that this is another example of uh, people piling on because of uh, Trump derangement syndrome, this, you know, this strong desire to, to punish him. She brought this as a civil case. This is not a criminal case. And I, to me, that says that she doesn't have the evidence to make a criminal case. So she's setting a lower bar and bringing this civil case. I don't think it's going to go any further. Now, it's over 200 pages long with a lot of details about the valuation of properties. But the fact of the matter is that 
real estate valuation of a complex real estate company like this is inherently very subjective. It depends what kinds of assumptions are used. Values can swing. It's not an exact science. And uh, the fact is that banks, sophisticated banks, don't rely on every jot and tittle in the financial statements. They do their own assessments. They make themselves comfortable. And the loans were paid back. These were successful investments, and the banks were paid back. So to have spent three years on this seems to me her trying to make good on a campaign promise that she was going to bring Trump down. Now, what's interesting about this, I mean, Bill Barr's comments were beautiful. Um, One thing he said that I didn't say yesterday, which is a great point, this was not a criminal case. It was a civil case. And Barr says she didn't have enough evidence to take it to a criminal case. It was such a weak case that she had to go for a civil case. But I'm not an attorney. But I always thought that you had to have someone that was harmed to bring a civil case. All the loans were paid back. I mean, if he hadn't paid the loans, then I understand the banks could have taken him to the to court and they could have gone after him in a civil case. Who was harmed in this situation? And yeah, does anybody think that a bank and again i don't know how much these loans were for but i can tell you this they were in the tens of millions of dollars if not into the hundreds of millions of dollars does anyone think a bank would lend money strictly upon an individual's financial statement alone you don't think they would do significant deal due diligence of course they they're going to do the due diligence uh, you know, at the end of the day, James is going to look like a partisan hack that she is. And uh, as we mentioned yesterday, right now in her reelection bid for this November, uh, she's behind. So uh, perhaps Letitia James, at the end of the day, uh, she's the one that's going to uh, waddle away with her tail between her legs. We'll see. Hey, thanks for being with us. Congratulations again to Bobby Blackman. And my thanks to John Malcolm of the Heritage Foundation. We'll do it again on Monday. Off tomorrow, we'll see you again on Monday at 5 o'clock. Bye-bye, everybody.